Hello and welcome to the Scottish Centre for Global History podcast. I'm Anna Adima and I'm a PhD candidate in history at the University of York. Today I will be joined by Malik Al Nasser, a PhD student at the University of Cambridge. Malik is an author, a performance poet and a filmmaker from Liverpool, whose remarkable life has been the subject of much media attention internationally. Born in Toxteth in the mid-60s, Malik grew up facing a range of hardships that saw him enter the care system in the 70s. Following his release back onto the streets of post-riot Toxteth in the 80s, he encountered the legendary poet and civil rights activist Gil Scott Heron. This chance encounter was to be life-changing for this traumatised and semi-literate street kid when Gil took Malik under his wing and mentored him from semi-literacy to a master's degree through poetry. Malik started tracing his roots back through slavery over 15 years ago and has made some remarkable discoveries which are featured on the BBC as well as in the Times, the Daily Mail and the Wall Street Journal. Malik's pioneering research has been recognised by Sir Hilary Beckles, historian David Olusoga, as well as the University of Cambridge. Malik began a PhD in history at the University of Cambridge with a full scholarship in October 2020 in recognition of the significance of his life story. We hope you enjoy listening to our conversation. Thank you so much, Malik, for joining us. I'm really excited to talk to you and I really think our listeners will enjoy our conversation. So yeah, thank you so much for making the time out of a busy schedule to talk to me. It's my pleasure and I'm very happy to be here. Um, so to kick things off, um, would you be happy with telling me and telling our listeners about your work and your research at the University of Cambridge? Uh, yes, so I am a first year PhD student at the University of Cambridge, St Catherine's College, and um, I'm at the Faculty of History, and I'm doing a historical research project which was really born out of um, a genealogical study that I was doing where I sought to trace my ancestry um, back through my, um, my heritage, uh, which, which started in uh, Guyana in South America, where my father came from. And uh, my mother's Welsh, my father's Guyanese, and my father's black, my mother's white. Um, but the Welsh side of my ancestry was very easy to trace because it was all uh, well documented, um, as you know, British archives generally tend to be. Um, but the colonial archives uh, for British Guyana, um, on the other hand, were very different. Um, they hadn't been um, made available and accessible. Um, online, um, they were also, um, you know, from the colonial period backwards, you know, you reach a point at which you um, hit slavery. And when you hit slavery, um, at that point, the, the information regarding um, the black family members uh, becomes incredibly um, obscure because of the way in which um, they chose to record the information about slaves. You know, they didn't use their surnames, they didn't record their proper birth dates, they didn't allow them to get married, so there wasn't bans and marriages and all the normal things that you would um, that you would get when you're trying to trace uh, ancestry um, here in you know Western Europe. Uh, just just don't correspond to um, the archive um, records that you would have when you're dealing with a population of enslaved people. So um, I started on a, uh, a journey, if you like, back in 2002, when I saw an, um, a documentary film about 100 years of black footballers and directly following it, 
was um, uh, another documentary made by the same team um, who had discovered in the course of their research a footballer that was more than 100 years old um, who was also black and he was from Guyana and his name was Andrew Watson. So um, my family name uh, on my father's side is, is also Watson. Uh, I became a Muslim in 1992. I changed my name to Mark Al Nasser. Prior to that, I was Mark Watson. My father was George. Uh, my father was Reginald Wilcox Watson. My grandfather was George Edward Watson. Um, so we come from a, a long line of Watsons from um, Demerara and Berbice, which is um, the former Dutch um, province of uh, what is present-day uh, Guyana, and, and subsequently was British Guyana. So I saw this um, documentary and I noticed this character who in the 1880s was uh, a famous football player. Um, he captained the Scottish national side, um, making him the first uh, black captain, uh, the first black footballer, the first black international. And he played for a number of clubs um, in England and in Scotland, um, including um, Park Grove um, in Scotland. He played for Queen's Park um, in, the, in, in England. He played for the London Swifts, the Corinthians. And um, he spent a time in Liverpool as well, my home city, um, where he played for Bootle FC, which was the forerunner to Liverpool FC. So this man was a prolific athlete. He'd been involved in all sorts of athletics. Um, he's recorded in an athletics journal. He was proficient at high jump. Uh, he played rugby as well, but he was known for his football. He was, he was considered to be uh, one of the architects of the game as we know it today. And um, to think that um, right at the inception of the development of the game of football, um, you have this black Victorian gentleman who's right in the, you know, in the center of this crucible and, and really in many regards directing the course of events um, was fascinating to me. Um, but what was more fascinating was the fact that um, not only did we share a family name and come from the same place, but there were photographs of him from the 1880s and 1890s and he looked identical to me. And that was, you know, just profoundly shocking to me. Um, and something that required further research. So I embarked upon um, years of research into Andrew Watson to try and connect the dots, if you like, uh, between he and I. Um, and that meant that, you know, at some point, the, you know, once I'd got past the, you know, the Scottish element of, of, of his ancestry um, through his father and, 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 you know, his father's concerns in, in Demerara, um, the only way for me to be able to really, um, you know, get what I needed to make the connection between between us was really to go back to Guyana. So in 2008, um, I made that journey back to Guyana to find my roots. Um, I took a researcher with me from uh, New York, uh, a fellow um, alumni of Hope University in Liverpool um, called Tonya Leslie. And uh, Tonya and I um, did basically a, a sort of self-financed field trip uh, Tonya scoured the archives in Georgetown for anything relating to Watsons and I went out into the field um, and followed up on, on all leads that I had from um, people who had known my father when he was alive. He died when I was still a teen. Um, and, you know, just little snippets of information of things that he told certain people about certain places where he lived or whatever. 
and I went back there armed only with my grandmother and my grandfather's names, the place where my grandmother resided before she died, um, and, and little else, you know, just this few, you know, little bits of anecdotal information. Um, and, and that set me on my, on my way, but through a series of, of very fortunate events, I managed to find um, my entire family on, on both sides, both the paternal and the maternal family, and was able to trace my, um, my, my grandfather's grandmother back to a woman called Nanny Ben, who we believe was a slave. Um, but at some point she must have become free because she married uh, a white man called William Watson. And um, from what we've been able to ascertain so far, and we've still got to get into the records offices in Guyana just to validate everything, but you know what it, what it, what it appears to be um, from the research so far is that that was actually William Robertson Watson, who was in fact the uncle of the black footballer, Andrew Watson. Um, and he was a plantation overseer in Belize, which um, you know would have put him in proximity, obviously, to the slaves um, and you know uh, by whatever means um, you know he's he's had some some black children um, but it turns out from the research that I did into Guyana and um, slavery during that period is that um, there were hardly any white women in Guyana at all I think in 1817 um, there was some returns that showed you know the makeup of the population and there were sort of 20,000 black and indigenous women um, and uh, there were only 200 white women in the entire colony. So when you think of how many uh, white men there were out there, uh, there was a distinct shortage of white women. Um, so it was very traditional um, in two ways. One was, you know, uh, a slave was considered sexually available. Um, so, you know, the, the white man had the discretion to, to take the slave and, and do what he willed with, with her or him. Um, and that was um, commonplace, um, and the, the colony was, was known to be rife with uh, venereal disease. Um, however, there was also another tradition among the kind of elite in the colony, the people who were very critical to the, um, to the, to the mercantile business concerns of the colony, and that was that they would, they would take uh, a housemaid, um, and she would be a wife in all respects, other than she would not sit at the table. And that's quite a significant thing, um, why she would not sit at the table. And the reason for that is that um, under the provisions of the Dutch law, which had presided prior to um, the territory of Guyana becoming um, British, and also under the Scottish law, and there was a lot of Scots um, who were out there. Um, it was, you know, certain areas of, of Guyana, particularly Berbice, were, were predominantly uh, Scottish controlled. There was a provision where two people could declare themselves married, provided they had a witness, and there was someone to attest to the fact that they were seen together socially. So if you took um, a black woman, uh, whether it was a free woman of colour, as they would call them, um, or in fact, um, a slave, um, and, you know, in some cases, um, an enslaved woman who'd been emancipated, um, then what would happen is um, you would have them as your housemaid. They would be a wife in all respects, other than they would not sit at the table. So that would mean that you were effectively married to them. Um, however, um, there was plausible deniability 
because if you went back to England, um, in England or in Scotland, you'd have to publish the bans and then you would have to then go ahead and have the marriage. But you would be in a situation where you were already married and that would be bigamy. But if you could demonstrate that you had never been seen socially with this person, i.e. they were not allowed to sit at the table, then you had plausible deniability for your black wife um, and you could still come over to England or Scotland or Holland and take a white wife um, and deny, in fact, that, that your, your, your marriage even existed. So many of the, um, the elite uh, Scots and Dutch um, and English as well would, would, would do that. And the reason that they would do that was to protect themselves from venereal disease. Um, because once the, um, the woman was deemed to be, um, you know, the, the, the wife of, you know, this individual, no other white man would, would touch her. So that was a sort of, there was, there was, there was that sort of level of agreement. So the prosper, no other man period would be able to touch her. So, so that would give um, a guarantee, if you like, of, uh, of, of there being, uh, you know, little prospect of venereal disease, unless of course the man decided to, you know, stray from that situation. But if he got venereal disease at that time, it could, you know, debilitate you to the point of even death. And some of these um, sugar planters and farmers were so um, pivotal to the entire um, slave trading and plantation, um, you know, uh, economy that they had, um, that if they were to go down with a venereal disease, the whole entire company would collapse. So they had to protect, if you like, their, um, their assets. And this was a mechanism by which they did it. They don't have any white women, so they would take a black woman as wife, um, but they would not let her sit at the table. And then when the time came for them to go back to Britain and enjoy their fortune, they would deny her. Um, and, and in Britain, they would regard the children of such a marriage as being illegitimate. Um, however, in reality, in law, both in the uh, local law in, in Guyana, the Scottish law as well, um, they would be, to all intents and purposes, a, a married couple. Um, so there were lots of instances of that. And that appears also to have been the case in the case of Andrew Watson's mother. Uh, because what we came to discover was that um, Andrew Watson's father, um, a gentleman called Peter Miller Watson, who's a white uh, Scottish slave owner from Crantis in Orkney, had uh, gone out there as a very young man, probably 17, 18 years of age, um, and his father, James Watson, had been the factor or chamberlain for the Earl of Orkney. Um, and they were a very affluent family. Um, they managed massive royal estates and um, they had done for generations. So he became the administrator, if you like, for the estates um, of the family, family business um, out there in Demerara. Um, and there's no mention in his entire life, in his will, of any white children. There's no mention of him um, having had a white wife, um, but he um, signed two children with a black woman called Anna Rose, um, one of whom was Andrew Watson, the footballer, and the other of which was his sister, Annetta, both of whom were brought in childhood to England for education, and both of whom lived um, the life of Victorian gentlefolk here. Um, with independent financial means, um, they went to the best, you know, 
um, facilities for, well, certainly Andrew did for education. He matriculated under Lord Kelvin at Glasgow University. He went to King's College in London. He was at Liverpool University as well. He trained as an engineer and became the chief engineer on the West India and Pacific Steam Navigation Company. Um, so as well as his footballing career, he also had his business interests as well. He was a railway shareholder, as many of the family were. Um, they'd invested the proceeds of the slave trade in the development of um, steam power and particularly rail railroad infrastructure, because that's how they moved their commodities to market. Um, so, you know, he lived a very privileged life, as did his sister um, in Victorian England, in a period when it was, you know, sort of the cusp, if you like, of, of slavery was still um, in effect in, in, in places like uh, Cuba and Brazil and, and the Americas because he was born in 1856. So he was born in the, in the latter end of, of the, um, the slave trade. Um, so it was quite, you know, quite fascinating to find a black Victorian gentleman living this life. And what it's revealed um, through the family history is this, you know, incredibly, you know, um, epic story of this mercantile dynasty that he belonged to. And, and that's really um, what my, um, kind of genealogical methodology has has really uh, unearthed um, because had I not looked at it from a genealogical point of view I would not have made the connections between um, the, the various different sort of mercantile powerhouse individuals that were actually involved in this dynasty beyond him and his immediate family his, his mother and father. Thank you so much, Malik. That was absolutely fascinating. Um, I know I was on mute, but I kept saying, wow, and going like, ah, oh, okay, when you're talking. Um, yeah, I find it, it's such a privilege, I feel, being able to trace back your, your roots and your family history, um, you know, so many decades and centuries, which I feel is something not many people are able to do. And because, you know, like you said, a lot of um, people are lost in the archives, um, depending on the archives that you're using. And I think it's so great that you're able to do that. Um, and that kind of it leads me on to my question about emotion and the archive. Um, may I ask you what about the emotional process of researching and writing your own family history, especially in an academic setting? And um, I understand that you know, sometimes the content or the nature of the sources that you're looking at, especially if they pertain to slavery, they can be quite violent, traumatic in nature. And may I ask what I, I guess what your coping mechanisms are, or how you grapple with this, um, both intellectually and emotionally when you look at them? Yeah, I mean, I've had some experience with, with dealing with this stuff because I've grown up in, um, in local authority care. I hadn't grown up in, in a family setting. I was taken away from my family by social services at the age of nine, and I was raised in a very brutal and racist um, care system um, in Northwest England. Um, and, you know, the effects of that were incredibly traumatic uh, on me between nine and 18. And by the age of 18, I was cast out onto the streets of Liverpool in post-riot Toxteth, um, you know, with a hundred pounds from social service, was made homeless, living in a hostel for homeless black feuds and being told to just you know uh, go away and don't come um and at that point i've had nine years um, you know uneducated because during that period in care system they never put any emphasis upon um education there was very little by their formal schooling there was no 
you know, key performance indicators, no milestones there, no academic qualifications to attain. You were essentially persona non grata, you know, um, you, were, you were just off the chart and nobody was following what you were doing. Um, so, you know, we worked on a farm, you know, we dug, dug trenches the size of a football field, planted potatoes, you know, we picked apples in an orchard and made cider, which they sold, you know, we smashed rocks to build foundations with, you know, sledgehammers so that they could have greenhouses to build, you know, to grow tomatoes. And, you know, they sold all the produce and, and, and kept us um, working as child labor. And, you know, so essentially it was, it was a form of slavery, but it was done under the auspices of Liverpool Social Services. Um, so I left the care system um, barely able to read and write, and I was very fortunate in that I, at the age of 18, uh, came across a, a, an American, Black American activist and poet called Gil Scott Heron, um, who was, you know, one of the people who was credited with the, um, the, the evolution of rap music as we know it, um, because he put, you know, a lot of the political polemic of, of his um, poetry to, to drum beats and eventually that is what we call now proto-rap, you know, that which preceded rap. Um, he famously did, did, did a thing called The Revolution Will Not Be Televised, which has been the subject of much, um, you know, sampling and speculation and so on. And Gil um, was riding high at the time he had a record in the charts, he, you know, he was filling out venues all around the world. And he took pity on me and, you know, heard my story and decided to give me a chance and took me out on tour. I was 18 years old. I went out on tour with this guy who paid for my hotels. He, you know, fed me, you know, allowed me to, um, to, to explore some of the thoughts and, you know, that, that were in my head with, with him. And he mentored me um, and helped me to unscramble a lot of the stuff that was really holding me back, but also to show me the prospects of how I could move forward. And one of the things that he taught me was that, you know, you're never going to find a way you know, forward until you understand your history and where you came from. You have to know what happened to put you in the situation in which you find yourself. And it didn't start with you. You know, it goes way back, you know, so go and study black history, go and study the blues, you know. And then when he realized that I couldn't read and write very well, I was kind of semi-literate at that point. Um, he encouraged me to become literate through poetry. So I started writing poetry and it was through the poetry that I became literate and then I was able to go to college and university and here I am today doing a PhD at Cambridge. But, you know, at 18 years of age when most people were getting their A-levels with AAB or whatever, you know, I didn't even have O-levels, you know, which was even beneath our even CSEs, you know. But I had a couple of CSEs. They took me to do these CSEs on the, the, the day of the exam at a school that I'd never attended in subjects I'd never studied for. And they just plonked me in there and, you know, it was kind of more of a tick box exercise. So of course I did very badly um, because I'd had zero preparation for it. Um, but other than that, you know, it was it was nothing, you know, really that you would, you know, speak about. Um, so I had essentially no qualifications um, and no ability to get any until I had this mentoring. Um, and that mentoring really unlocked my potential and gave me the opportunity to really start to explore, um, you know, black history having learned to, you know, become literate. And I started reading a lot of the, um, not just the poetic works of things like the Harlem Renaissance, people like Langston Hughes, but I started reading a lot of the black American authors um, who'd written on, on history, you know, people like Rosa Guy and, you know, um, Zora Neale Hurston and, 
you know, people like uh, Tony, uh, Tony Morrison and, uh, you know, um, having read these guys, um, Alex Haley, who's autobiography from Mathemax and so on, I started to gain a very strong sense of, you know, my black identity um, and how to reassert that in a post-colonial, you know, post-slavery um, world. And that is really the foundation of what started me on this journey. Um, but what I also did was um, attained through going to college and university, this necessary skills to research. Um, and, you know, I did sociology and human geography for my undergrad. And the research skills that I developed, um, that I applied to my own life. And I researched my own life and, and launched a legal case against the government and, and spent 10 years going through the litigation and, and then eventually won. And um, as well as winning the, the, the case for, you know, their negligence and, and abuse that I suffered as, as a kid going through the care system. Um, I also um, got a public apology from the Lord Mayor of Liverpool. But in the process of doing that, I had to find a mechanism, uh, a methodology that would work for me to enable me to research my own traumatic experiences without being re-traumatized to the extent where, you know, I might not be able to finish the work or function. Um, and many people who've been through that system were just incapable. A lot of them became drug addicts and, you know, drunks and some of them committed suicide and a lot of them went on to just live a street life and they went to jail and, you know, so on because they'd had such traumatic um, childhoods devoid of any care or love or family relations or any of the things that would really give a person a sense of, of, of security or, or belonging. Um, and I was, you know, cognizant of that and I was determined not to go in that way, but I had the fortunate benefit of having this positive role model and this mentor um, who was able to sort of guide me through those stages. So every year I would go on tour with him um, and we would review, you know, what I'd accomplished up to that point, you know, what I needed to do with my life, how I was going to move forward. And when I launched the legal case, he had a lot of legal understanding because he'd been involved in the entertainment industry for years, dealt with a lot of lawyers, had a lot of legal cases himself. And, you know, he, with the basic understanding that he had, he sort of nurtured me through that process. So one of the things that I did um, as, a, as a coping strategy was to um, divorce myself from the subject matter of the material. So um, it's, it's just a, a kind of an emotional detachment that you, you know, impose upon yourself that enables you to look uh, far more objectively at the subject matter, even when that subject matter relates to you, because you treat it as if you're dealing with something that happened to somebody else. So, you know, in the first instance, I'm dealing with, you know, sociological research methods, ethnography, but the subject is me. I'm looking at my own case files. I'm looking at my own records, my own educational records, my own medical records, my own historical case conferences, all this kind of stuff. And I'm also looking at the legal framework within which these children's homes operated, you know, the extent to which they adhered to that, which they deviated from that, parliamentary stuff relating to archival materials about these various different places, knowing what I knew from my own experiences, but then looking at how these things should have been run and then pulled together um, you know, a 46,000 word report on my own case, which when it went to the QC, he said, you've actually done a competent single one man 
public inquiry into your own cases and I chair public inquiries and this is a competent public inquiry and then proceeded to offer me a pupillage in his in his chambers um, and I did go to law school for a minute you know and then I thought to myself well I've already won the case I really don't want to be a lawyer so I dropped out of law school to write my book of poetry which I did and I published it in 2004 um, set up my own publishing company and then you know went on and, and followed my career in, in sort of media and, and arts, um, you know, including being a performance poet and, you know, and a speaker. But I started to speak on some of the social issues um, and trying to get involved in doing various different things that could um, change policy, affect policy and bring about social change. So uh, in 2000, I, I started working with refugees and asylum seekers um, and helped to develop a think tank in um, Liverpool University um, and Liverpool Hope University that would um, do policy development for asylum seekers and refugees, but would also capacity build, um, you know, asylum seeker and refugee graduates um, so that they can actually research their own community needs and feed that up into policy making fora. And we developed a raft of policy for, for a range of different organisations, including the council, housing, uh, strategic housing partnerships and, and so on. So, you know, all my work became about making a difference, you know, whether it was my poetic work, I'm standing on stage, reading poetry or reciting poetry, performing with a band, talking about social issues, geopolitical, you know, issues, um, trying to make people think, wake them up, or whether I was going into schools, doing school assemblies, or going into colleges and universities, giving seminars, you know, about a whole range of topics. Um, but the black history was really, the locus of it for me it was the core of it because um within our history is the keys to our present uh and and the ability to unlock if you like uh, the potential of our futures and i'm a kind of living embodiment of that process so i sort of feel a kind of fiduciary responsibility to, to go out and do that um and that's why you know when i had got past the um the lawsuit suing counsel and, and, and winning that case and spending 10 years researching myself and detaching myself emotionally from the subject matter so that I could do that effectively and then seeing it work. Um, I had then sort of inadvertently developed a methodology, if you like, for being able to do that kind of ethnographic research, um, you know, on traumatic, you know, subject matter, which is personal to me. Um, and that really prepared me for what I'm doing now in the PhD, because now I'm going back another generation. I'm not just going back to, to me and my childhood and how traumatic that was in a racist, you know, post-colonial, you know, kind of um, Liverpool setting. I'm going back through my father's sugarcane plantations, Guyana, during colonialism. I'm going back to my grandfather's at the cusp of, you know, the abolition of slavery. I'm going back to my great-grandparents, you know, who are in slavery and, and obviously there's a whole nother level of traumatic materials that you're encountering there um, and there's a whole nother story to be told but it's really really essential to be able to have a mechanism to be able to do that without becoming um, you know overwhelmed by what you find and then re-traumatized to the point where you become post-traumatic just as a consequence of doing the research you know, and it's like people say ignorance is bliss. Ignorance is not bliss. Ignorance is kind of a serious, you know, condition. It's like, I consider it to be like a disease of the mind, you know, 
Um, ignorance is the reason why these things are, are, are allowed to perpetuate themselves from generation to generation because, you know, we, we don't have um, agency to be able to do anything about them. So in order to be able to get into a position where we do have agency, we're compelled to go out and understand what it is that we're trying to have agency about. And, and, and in order to do that, we have to unpick that past. Um, otherwise, we'll end up, you know, like Candace Owens. You know, she was standing up there yesterday saying how George Floyd was probably just killed himself, you know, um, on Tucker Carlson, do you know what I mean? And, you know, that's like, you know, that's kind of like, you know, a, a, a dream for, a, you know, for a far-right racist Klansman in the police to have a black person who is so ignorant of black history that they will stand up there and support the KKK against black people, you know. And I think that's just indicative of, of the fact that why slavery and colonialism were ever able to occur, because there were always people who were sufficiently ignorant to allow that to happen, whether they were on the African coast willing to sell the tribe next door, you know, as long as it wasn't their guys into slavery, not realizing that then you're going to be colonized and enslaved yourself and the guys next door won't be there to, to come to your aid, you know. So it was that small mindedness and that ignorance that allowed that situation to perpetuate itself, to get us to the stage where we are now. But the fact that even whilst we're here and people, you know, can, can read, can write, can get educated and so on, but yet can still be that ignorant in these times is a testimony to the fact of how ignorance itself is the problem. It's at the core, it's at the root of the problem. And to me, the only way to cure ignorance is with knowledge. And that's why it becomes incumbent upon all of us to seek that knowledge and then to be able to utilize, utilize that knowledge to educate not only ourselves and, and those around us, but our, you know, the wider world as well. And, and I think in doing so, we can then start to move towards finding the remedies because we understand all the variables in the equation. Thank you so much for sharing all of that, Malik. That was really, really interesting to hear. Um, and. I, I know you touched on this earlier when you talked about your research, um, because as this is, you know, a podcast hosted by the Scottish Centre for Global History, I was wondering whether you could talk to me, talk to our listeners um, about Scotland's role in the slave trade. Mm -hmm. So, so there's there's a whole group of people in Scotland who say it wasn't the us, you know, we call them it wasn't the us brigade, you know, um, they 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 they've got this this um, notion again rooted in in ignorance of their own history. Um, that, that somehow it, it was the English, you know, they did it, you know, just like what they did to us, you know, there's a group of people who think um, because of the things like the Highland clearances and so on and so forth, that it equates to um, enslavement. Um, now, you know, there was serfdom, there was subjugation by the English, there was oppression, there was tyranny, there were all of those things. That's, you know, not to diminish in any way, shape or form, the significance of those historical injustices to the Scottish people by, in particular, the English. Um, however, it's a false equivalence to take that and equate it to the enslavement of Africans, where, as we know from, you know, a variety of legal cases, um, you know, the case of the Zong and so on, you know, the Mansfield case and so on, we, we, we know that you know, to be rendered into the status of a piece of property and not to have the rights of a human being 
are two distinctly different things and you cannot equate one to the other. So whereas someone is being maltreated, but they still have the status of a human being, there will be some recourse for them. But for somebody who's being maltreated and they have the status of a piece of property, there is no recourse for them. As we saw with the Zong case when they threw, I think 136 black people overboard, the captain was brought up on charges of murder. And it was argued by the Lord Chief Justice that, you know, um, it would be no more, you know, uh, different for him to throw 136 planks of wood over the side because they are his property to do with what he wills. And, you know, how could you bring a case like this, a spurious case and, you know, um, uh, sully the good name of a, of, of a good man, you know, because he threw 136 pieces of his property overboard to their deaths. Um, so when you're living in a legal framework like that, and we have a similar thing in the American constitution with the idea, you know, the four fifths provision, you know, um, which, which rendered, you know, um, oh, sorry, three fifths, you know, that, 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 that a black person was only three fifths a man, therefore didn't have the right to life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness like everyone else. You know, you've got a period from 1776, you know, to uh, uh, 1867, where there was no uh, constitutional provisions of protection at all for, um, for, for black people until the, the, the 14th Amendment. So, you know, in, in this situation, false equivalence is drawn. And in the case of uh, the kind of, it was Niels Brigade, um, you know, they will look to that uh, kind of rationale to try and uh, negate, if you like, the impact of any Scots that were involved in the slave trade. And I know a few people, um, there's David Alston has done some incredible work. He's got a website called Slaves and Highlanders. Um, uh, he's an incredibly prolific um, uh, researcher and, and he's been absolutely committed for the last 20 years or so to researching this. I don't know anyone who's gone into more depth than, than David Alston. Um, he's up there in, in, in um, uh, he's in Cranford. Um, a Ross and Cromarty. Um, so right up there in the Highlands. So he's a true Highlander, you know, he's white, you know, he's an academic, um, but he's looking at this from a reality point of view and not from, you know, the sort of ignorant, you know, fantasy point of view. Um, there's also people like Stephen Mullen, um, who um, he has a, a Twitter, the Glasgow Sugar Aristocracy, and he also wrote the report on Glasgow University. Um, he co-authored that. Um, which led to the £20 million reparations that Glasgow University agreed to, to spend in the course of um, reparative justice for um, the, uh, the, the beneficial interest that it received from, uh, from the slave trade itself. Um, so Stephen Mullen's work is, is also prolific in, in this regard um, and, and bears uh, consideration. And, and you will find um, when you talk to people like that, that there's no ambiguity at all amongst those who've looked at this as to the massive extent to which not only Scots were involved in enslavement, but to which Scotland itself was a beneficiary, whether it was the tobacco industry coming into Glasgow or the sugar industry coming into Glasgow and Edinburgh, or whether it was the infrastructure that was built with the steam engines, um, much of which was pioneered, by Scots, much of which was pioneered in order to, you know, industrialize the, the, the production of sugar. 
and you know that uh, the skill set from that was transferable across what became you know mass transit in this in that the steam engines then were also you know repurposed for the purposes of, of travel um whether it was you know steam ships or whether it was steam trains and many of the um, early investors in the railroads not just in scotland uh, and england but also in america and canada in south america and australia and new zealand were all slave traders and they used the proceeds of slavery to build that infrastructure, which fueled the Industrial Revolution. Um, you know, it, it facilitated the Industrial Revolution, you know, the ability to move commodities. Uh, uh, it wasn't just all about mass production. It was about the ability to move those mass-produced goods to market efficiently. And if you're talking about horse-drawn carriages and donkey carts and, you know, um, shire horses pulling barges at, you know, two miles an hour versus you know, stick it on the back of a train and send it, you know, 60, 80 miles an hour, you know, down a track and it's there in Manchester or the Lancashire textile mills or whatever um, within, you know, literally a couple of hours. Um, that was, you know, what enabled that industry to proliferate um, in, in the way that it did and subsequently fueled the Industrial Revolution, which was, you know, um, sort of in accord, if you like, with, with the arguments that were being made by scholars like Eric Williams, much of which was being completely and utterly dismissed um, by, by the academy, purely because he was a black scholar and he was making the association, if you like, between the development of Western Europe through the industrialization process uh, and the industrial revolution. Um, and he was attributing that to the exploitation and the extractive industries within um, the enslavements of people in, um, in the Caribbean and, and the Americas. So, you know, now when you look at the actual fact on the ground, we're starting to see something emerge which actually validates that position and, and but, it, but it trumps the academy. But again, if you don't have black people within the academy and you don't have black voices at the table, when, when these things are being determined, you will not necessarily have that um, perspective to you know to to draw upon when you're doing your research so that's why it's important to um to nurture black academics and then to be able to um look more objectively if you like at the um at the research uh, and archival materials to be able to make a more qualified judgment about um what actually happened because if everything's being done from a very supercilious kind of condescending colonialist perspective where you know they treat Africans and black people and people of African descent as infantile and childlike and you know they don't record their births they're sort of about this year or about that year or about this old they don't use their surnames they only give them first names and you know their names are not associated with their tribes or their origin or anything that can be traced back to give legitimacy to 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 you know to their origins if you like you cut off the roots and the tree just you know dies and and that was the whole idea so it's about re-establishing those roots and and tracing those roots back through and it's not an easy job because the colonial experiment was was uh, very prolific it was designed to eradicate that it was designed to acculturate you know the acculturation process is where you annihilate the culture of the um, of the individuals that you're bringing into the society and you replace it and supplant it with your culture 
and then you breed them out so over a period of time they become indistinguishable from the whole society and essentially their language their tradition their name their you know familial um, lineages their you know their, their their food their songs their religion everything is gone it's annihilated you know and that is rooted in the principle of 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 white supremacy and the scots were just as prolific if not more so in some places than the English in doing that. And you have, you know, the Campbell family, the, 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 the house of Alexander Houston and Co. You know, the, um, there's, you know, many, many traders that, you know, when you look at Guyana, the churches in Guyana are called Kirks. You know, the main church in Georgetown is St. Andrew's Kirk. You know, these, the, you know, this, it could have been a Scottish colony. Had we not had the Derian, the failed sort of Derian thing in Panama, um, and therefore the acts of the union, Scotland would have had colonies, you know, and in the Caribbean, Guyana would have been one of them. And many other Caribbean islands like Grenada were predominated, and even Jamaica to some extent were predominated by Scottish merchants. And the proceeds of that went back to, to, to uh, Glasgow and Edinburgh, but also to Orkney and Inverness. And in the case of um, my, my own um, familial uh, dynasty, if you like, one of the characters from Glasgow was a guy called Charles Stuart Parker. Um, his son was an MP. Um, Charles Stuart Parker, the father, um, owned a company called McKinroy Parker & Co. in Glasgow. McKinroy Parker & Co. had a subsidiary in Liverpool called Sandbatch & Co. And they had an operation in Demerara called uh, McKinroy Sandbatch & Co., later Sandbatch Parker & Co. And the whole entire thing was built on sugar, coffee, rum, molasses, and slaves. So, you know, that was a massive conglomerate. They had a shipping line, they minted stamps, they eventually formed a bank, the Bank of Liverpool, which subsumed all the other family slave trader banks and eventually was bought out in 1968 by Barclays. Um, at the time, it was the sixth largest bank in the UK and it was built entirely on the proceeds of slavery. And at the helm of it was, you know, there was one English guy, Samuel Sandbach, a uh, Dutch guy, Philip Frederick Tinney, and a Scottish guy, Charles Stuart Parker. Um, they were among the main be beneficiaries. There were others as well who were involved, William Brown and, and others. But the main beneficiaries of that and the shareholders and, um, you know, uh, directors and chairman and so on, from its inception right through, um, were, were, were these guys who were intermarried with the Scots. And Samuel Sandbach had a Scottish wife. You know, um, there was another guy, George Rainey. George Rainey was one of the people who was involved in the Highland Clearances. You know, he bought an island off the coast of Scotland and then he in introduced laws to drive all the people off the island so that he could clear it to, to, to do um, hunting. You know, it was a bit like Trump trying to get his golf course. You know, this guy just wanted to get all the, all the tenants off so that he could use it as, you know, build some hunting lodges and do deer shoots and stuff like that there. So he made a law that no one on the island could get married and because he was the laird, you know, he had that power and he was driving people off the island. If you want to get married, you had to leave the island, you know. Um, so he was part of the Highland Clearances, but at the same time, George Rainey made endowments to Glasgow University. The Rainey Scholarship still exists at Glasgow University. It was worth about half a million pounds last year, and it's been going since the 1790s. Um, you know, and he was a partner in this firm, and he was also married into this family. So all of these guys, even the Dutch guy and the English guy who were involved, all had Scottish wives. Their wives were Robertsons from Kiltern. So, you know, and they were beneficiaries as well. They were the matriarchs of this family that owned the shipping line, that minted stamps, that ended up printing currency. You know, they issued pound notes for the Isle of Man through their bank. 
you know, um, they, they sat in Parliament, they enjoyed privilege. One of them, uh, Antoinette Sandbach, was, a, was an MP up until Boris Johnson's government. Um, you know, the, the Parkers and the Tinnies, the, you know, they've all had um, uh, parliamentary uh, representation from that time. John Gladstone, the father of Prime Minister William Ewart Gladstone, is also a family member. He's married into them as well. And he was the single largest recipient of slavery compensation. One of his plantations alone had like 2,000 slaves on it um, in, um, uh, in, in Demerara. And he had four plantations out there. So, and he's, you know, he was a third cousin of, of one of these guys. So they're all intermarried. The Scots were totally in, entwined in this industry. And, and the money that they had financed so many other things. They endowed universities and public schools. They, you know, so they were able to get people within the academy to say the things that they wanted to say in order to justify the case for slavery. They ran the West India Committee. They had lobby groups. You know, John Gladstone was the head of the West India Committee. Charles Stuart Parker was the head of the West India Committee in Glasgow. These were petitioning Parliament, you know, to not abolish slavery. And when it was imminent that it was going to be abolished, they petitioned Parliament to ensure that they were compensated. Slaves never got compensated, you know, but the slave owners were compensated. And the money that they were compensated with was massive. And, and, and this firm known as Sandbach Tinney, who were the, uh, my slave owner ancestors, um, are basically, the, the, you know, collectively the largest recipients of the slavery compensation scheme. So, you know, um, and, and they were all Scots or married into Scottish nobility and Scottish families. Um, their families can be traced right back, whether it's the Robertsons of, of, of Kindaker or the of Crantit or the, the Watsons of, of uh, Kirkwall and Orkney or the um, the Parkers of Glasgow, or, you know, or the, 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 the Rainies, you know, these are all Scots. They're all Scots, and they're not like insignificant Scots. These are Scots who made big impacts. They had, you know, they made a difference there in the who's who of Scotland. Some of them are amongst the richest people in this country at that time. And they're paying for and establishing entire, you know, industries, the modern banking system that we know today was a, a consequence of, of the, the, um, the be, you know, the behaviors, if you like, of these guys, because they had their, their counting houses. And, you know, in your counting house, obviously, you'd have all your money that was coming in from your, uh, your business, but your counting houses were essentially, if you tried to move your money from one place to the next, it was, it was at risk. You know, the Spanish used to put everything into gold and stick on a galleon and send it back to Spain. Everyone knew if you saw a galleon, you know, privateers, pirates, whatever, Spanish galleons sack it because it's going to be full of gold. They, they knew that. It was always the case. These guys didn't want to move their money. So what they did, they would leave their money um, in one place in, in Demerara. And then they would just order stuff, you know, like get, send me a slave ship. So Charles Stuart Parker would build the slave ship in Glasgow and send it out there and uh, debit their account in Glasgow. You know, um, he would then um, order, you know, sugar uh, commodities from, from Demerara when that, um, you know, when, when, when that order was, uh, was placed, when the ship arrived there, you know, the slaves would be sold, his cargo would be credited in Demerara, and then the ship would be loaded with the produce and his account in Demerara would be debited with the, um, with the cost of the uh, commodities, which would then be sent back to Glasgow or Liverpool and would then be sold. And then the accounts in Glasgow or Liverpool would then be credited 
you know, for the, uh, the Demerara accounts will be credited in Liverpool and whatever was owed for the, you know, for the cost of, um, you know, uh, building the ships or whatever were, were also then reconciled. So, so there was a system of credits and debits that were going on, which meant that, you know, there was money being held in all three places, but the commodities moved, but the money didn't move. And that was safer from pirates and privateers. And that is the system and the foundation of the modern banking system. And these guys in 1831 formed the first joint stock bank outside of the Bank of England. Um, and then, you know, obviously that bank became what we know today as, as Barclays. Um, and there's many other examples with the British Linen Bank, the Royal Bank of Scotland, the Colonial Bank, and so on and so forth. You, you'll find um, similar stories with other mercantile houses interrelated with, with those banks. Um, so, you know, when you think about the influence of Scotland, you can't take all of that political influence, that mercantile influence, that, you know, that systemic um, kind of, you know, influence that's resulted in systems that we use today that were developed there during slavery. You can't ignore that and act like Scotland had nothing to do with it when all these guys were either Scots or married to Scots and in Scottish families and being supported by the clan system. Thank you so much, Malik. That was really interesting. Um, and I'd like to go back to what you said earlier when you're talking about ignorance as opposed to knowledge. Um, and I was wondering, as someone who's from Liverpool, which is one of the key cities um, in Britain's slave trade and who is researching slavery and the slave trade now, would you be able to comment on you know, current attitudes in Britain towards um, this very dark period in their history? Um, and yeah, I guess, yeah, and current public memory towards slavery. Yeah, I think you've got, you know, really two camps. You've got those who are in absolute denial of it. But those people who are in denial of it, they could be similar to the people who are in Holocaust denial. You know, they, you know they, they've got an idea that when you think of Holocaust deniers, you know, they've got an idea that Nazism is good because they, they like the idea of fascism, okay? But you can't like the idea of fascism without coming across the fact that fascism is responsible for the Holocaust. And the Holocaust is horrible, whichever way you look at it. So the simple thing for them to do, to continue to you know, believe, if you like, in fascism, is to deny the Holocaust. And in the process of denying it, they then no longer have to think about the Holocaust and they can go off and be happy fascists, you know, um, free of any guilt of, of the, you know, the uh, uh, inadvertent support that they're giving for people who, who caused the, the, the murder of millions of, uh, of, of innocent people. So it's the same thing with slavery. Now, if you think that the Holocaust deniers, they're denying a thing which happened between, you know, the, the, the 1930s and the 1940s, you know, it's the whole thing from its start to its more or less end was, was a 10 year period. You take um, transatlantic slavery, you're talking about something that started with the reconquista of Spain in 1482 and the fall of Granada and the driving of the African Moors out of Europe into Africa. And then the chasing of them into Africa to subjugate them in Africa and enslave them so that they could never again come back and conquer Europe. You know, so so that's 14, 1482. Columbus's voyage, you know, the fall of Granada was 1482. Columbus's voyage is 10 years later in 1492, you know, with Arabic maps from the libraries in Cordoba, which they seized with Ferdinand and Isabella during the Reconquista. And he's going out trying to find, you know, 
um, China um, with a map where not realizing that the Arabs always had the, the north at the bottom and south at the top, as the Egyptians did, the ancient Egyptians. That's why you have, you know, Upper Egypt is, is, is in the, the Valley of the Kings in, in, in Aswan, you know, um, by, by, by Sudan um, in Nubia. And then you've got, you know, Lower Egypt is, is on the Mediterranean, Alexandria, you know, because their perception of the globe is that north is at the top and, you know, north is at the bottom and south is at the top. And that's always the way it was. And Columbus didn't understand that. So he thought he was um, sailing east, you know, and that he would hit India before he hit China. But he actually, because he had the map upside down, he sailed west and he hit America. And that's why he called them Indians, because he thought he was in India, you know. Um, and, and he had to go back and convince Ferdinand and Isabella that it wasn't a failure, that he was going to get to China and the riches of China so that they didn't chop his head off. So he brought some of them back with him and some other stuff. And then they started working on that whole colonial um, episode of, you know, genocide against the indigenous populations of the Caribbean and the Americas. And, um, and you know, the building of that land, you know, in the, in the Western kind of way, if you like. You know, using the enslaved labor of, of Africans and the indentured labor of, um, of the Chinese and, and also in some cases the, 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 um, the Indians as well. So that period of denial starts in 1492 and it runs up to, you know, 1958 when African nations start to, you know, emerge from colonialism um, if you can call it that, because I don't know that they ever really did emerge from colonialism. That's another, you know, story for another day. Um, but, you know, that process, at least in, in, in name, that, you know, they were gaining um, political independence, shall we say, um, even though that's also doubtful. But let's just say for argument's sake that they were gaining political independence. Then, you know, you got from 1492 to, to 1968, uh, 58 and that entire period you know of four centuries is totally denied and then when you look at what led to that colonial you know exploit uh, exploitation if you like of um, of, of Africa um, which was the 600 years prior to that of black African Moorish you know Muslim rule in Spain Portugal southern France, the Balearics, Malta, Sicily, Southern Italy, you know, um, that, that whole period of influence there is also erased from memory. So between the 400 years of colonialism and the 600 years of Africans dominating Europe and civilizing Europe, you've got a thousand year period of history that has been wiped out of the history books in order for them not to feel guilty about what they did. Because the whole idea of, of, of the inherent superiority of the white race was rooted um, in the notions of the Reconquista of Spain and Portugal, that the Catholic faith was the superior faith and everyone else was a, a heathen barbarian that needed to be civilized and then the process of civilization was best accomplished through colonialism and slavery. We don't get taught this in school. 
They don't get taught this in school. So how do you get this historical fact to be able to put together that narrative and understand what happened so that we can know where we are now, so we can know why there is a Donald Trump and why there's a Candace Owens? You know, why are there people who are still clinging to the notion of the inherent superiority of the white race over the black race? And why have you got black people agreeing with them and voting for the Ku Klux Klan? That is the ignorance I'm talking about. And it's not just their ignorance, it's our ignorance as well. And that's, that's what we need to address. And that's what my research is trying to address. But I'm using my own family as the kind of panacea for that. I'm, you know, I'm looking back through my own roots and tracing my ancestry back through my slave roots, both the slave traders and the slaves to understand who I am, where I come from and how we got to be in the position that we're in today. Thank you so much, Malik. That was absolutely fascinating to hear. Um, and as we reach the conclusion of our little conversation, or oh, it's not really little, um, of our fascinating conversation. But it was not little in terms of its uh, outcome. So, yeah. <laughs> 20 minutes, it's not, there's not going to be no 20 minute podcast. This, That's true, yeah. <laughs> Um, so I understand that you have two books coming out this year. Yes. Um, so I, sorry, go on. I was yeah, I was just going to ask if you could you know talk to us about it and about the books that you have coming out. Yeah. So um, I published an article um, in 2011 um, called "Ghost of Heron Saved My Life," and it was um, it ran over four pages in the Guardian, um, and that was um, just after Gil Scott passed away. And I've been asked by his record company and his publisher to say something because they were aware of the story of how he mentored me and, you know, so on. And they really wanted people to understand that side of Gil that was not in the public domain at that point. And I told the story and then it kind of went viral. Um, so at that point, I got a literary agent and um, I started to put together sample chapters of a memoir about my life with Gil Scott Heron. So that was in 2011. Now, at that point, I'd already started... Um, you know, the research into my slave ancestry, if you like, because that starts around 2003. But um, Gil wasn't really a part of that. Um, so, um, you know, when I got to Guyana in 2007, um, I'd actually, you know, uncovered the family and so on. That took on a whole new sort of impetus for me. And then I'd been gradually uh, researching, um, you know, that as a separate thing, if you like, you know, my slave ancestry. Um, but I'd written um, synopsis for the book, um, uh, Letters to Gil, um, about me, you know, developing my skills. I'd gone away to sea for some years. I'd learned to read and write. I'd used poetry to become literate. I used to send my poetry in, in letters to Gil. And when we went on tour, you know, after I came back off the ship, I'd spend a couple of months at home. We'd go on tour around Europe or America or wherever. And I, he would read my poetry, appraise it, mark it. You know, it was a bit like a sort of pupil-teacher kind of relationship. And, um, you know, I became more and more literate through that process. So um, the story of searching for my uh, slave roots was, was the, the, the follow on from that, if you like. So um, I saw them as two very distinct and different things. Um, and in 2000, and, um, well, oh, what was it? Uh, hang on a sec. It was last year, what was last year? 2020? Okay. 2020. 
Yeah, so in 2020, I um, did another article um, with the BBC uh, called Searching for My Slave Roots, and they published it on BBC Online. And it did, I think, a million and a half reads over like 48 hours. I think it did a million in the first 24 hours. Um, and that just went totally viral. And at that point, I was approached by like just literally about a dozen publishers within a 48-hour period who all wanted the rights to my to my memoir. Um, and I was like, well, actually, I've got one already that I've been working on here from 2011. It's like, don't they? And they're like, yeah, 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 that's good. But what about this slavery one? You know, and I'm like, you know, because we're in a kind of post-George Floyd world, you know, people looking for black stories and so on. And I'm like, yeah, that's great. But that's a different story. But I think some of the publishers were saying, well, we'll put it all together and, you know, and it'll be great because it got the Bill Scott thing and then you got the slavery thing and it's be a big story and a bestseller. And, you know, and I was like, look, these are two very distinct and different things. You know, these are different parts of my life, the different volumes in my life. The Gil Scott Heron book was written without any reference whatsoever to the slavery thing. Um, I want to finish it. You know, um, this year is the 10th anniversary of Gil's passing. I would like to publish that as a separate thing. Um, and there was one uh, publisher, um, William Collins, it's an imprint of HarperCollins, with the publishing director, Arabelle Pike. She actually, she got it immediately. When I started saying it, she was like, I get it. This is like, I think this is two books. So she brought a whole team of people together from HarperCollins. They all, you know, the rights people and the, the marketing people, PR people, and, you know, and distribution people and so on. And we all had a big Zoom. And within the end of that Zoom, it was determined that it was, in fact, two separate stories and it would be two books. So I delivered the first book um, in draft um, in December, um, which is called Letters to Gill. It's going to be published on the 2nd of September in 2021. Um, it's actually available now to pre-order on all good bookshops. Um, yeah. Um, so it's it's out there, published by uh, William Collins and Prince of HarperCollins. Um, and uh, the Searching for My Slave Roots book, I'm currently writing. And I'll be due to deliver that to my publisher in draft in December. And that will probably be out in 2022. Um, so this is, um, you know, going to really be kind of the stuff that I'm hoping going to change the narrative in terms of how we look at this, the slave trade. Um, you know, it, you know, we've we've got the sort of Alex Haney's roots kind of paradigm of the kind of antebellum South and and what was happening in the plantations there in Virginia and so on. Um, and, you know, my family extended there as well because the Scottish guy, Charles Joe Parker, his father, James Parker, had tobacco plantations in Virginia and he financed Charles Joe Parker to start his original operation in Grenada, which then moved to Guyana, which became Sandbox Tinny. Um, so, you know, the, it, we're, we're linked to that side of it as well. Um, however, um, my main focus of the story is, is on the Guyana kind of sugar uh, trade and, and and what was going on with that and the plantation uh, slavery that was that was happening there, um, but it's also not just about the book. It's also the subject of my thesis as well. So for my PhD at Cambridge, I'm uh, looking at a particular period between 1790 and 1840, and I'm looking more at the mercantile dynasties and the um, particularly the Scottish and Dutch mercantile dynasties and the impact that they had on the wider um, slavery economy uh, during that period um, and using, if you like, my own slave owner ancestors archives as the uh, foundation for, for that research. 
Um, and I've developed those archives with Cambridge University. I've taken my, my archive and had it all digitized and, um, and that's gonna be available to the public also, um, probably around the time when I finish my, my thesis. And that will be a collection, um, a Sandbach Tinney Slavery Archive collection on Cambridge Digital Library. And they've just made me an associate actually of the um, uh, Cambridge Digital Humanities yesterday. So I'm really, I'm really proud of that and pleased because of the work that we're doing. And we're talking to other collections of Sandbach Tinney related materials as well. I've been talking to Cutty Sark Museum and talking to um, Glasgow University and also to um, National Museums Liverpool, like the Maritime Museum and the Slavery Museum, um, because they've got a lot of Sandbach Tinney related material too. And I'm trying to find a way to get everything in kind of one big data set so that people can really see the, the, the true extent of the mercantile impact that these Scottish and Dutch merchants had on the, um, the slave trade during, you know, the um, late 18th, um, you know, right through the 19th century. Thank you so much, Malik. Um, congratulations on the appointment of your position. Um, and I also, I can't wait to read your books. I'm definitely going to get my hands on the copies when, of both books when they come out later this year. Well, it's available to pre-order now on all Oh, books. good to know. Okay. I'll, I'll drop the link, the non-Amazon links. I'll drop them down in the, in the show notes. Um, and also, I just wanted to say, I think it's so impressive that you're writing two books on top of your PhD. Um, I don't know how you do it. I know I certainly couldn't. And I think that's a really cool achievement. Well, I haven't done it yet. I've done the first book and I'm partway, I'm a third of the way almost through the PhD. So, you know, um, watch this space. Um, <laughs> I'm just trying to be incredibly disciplined and sort of systematic about my approach to it. Um, because, you know, for me, it's not, I'm not doing a PhD because of career aspirations. I'm not doing a PhD because, you know, um, I think it'd be great to have, you know, the, the, the doctor, you know, on my, uh, you know, name or whatever. Um, I'm doing this because I'm driven by a passion to know um, and to teach what I know so that it can make an impact and, and, and change some things, you know, I'm trying to um, you know, make things for my children um, a little bit more clear than they were for me. And somebody somewhere has to stop and do that work in order to clear these things up. Otherwise, people will continue with the same misconceived notions that they are, in fact, inherently inferior because all of the structures of the society in which they live um, give them to believe that. And the science gives them to believe that. And, you know, um, the academy uh, underpins that. So it's only when we sort of penetrate the academy, if you like, and then start to um, change that narrative by being able to, you know, reappraise the, um, the evidences uh, from our point of view, you know, without the, um, the, you know, the colonial goggles or the, you know, eugenicist notions of inherent superiority uh, as, as a factor in that. Um, and have a much more objective approach to the, to the, to the subject matter um, that we would actually be able to redress those um, historical um, injustices and, and, and inaccuracies. Thank you so much, Malik. And I think that brings us to you know, the conclusion of our conversation. Um, this was so fascinating. I don't know if you could see, but I have an entire A4 page of notes of stuff I want to Google later. Um, but yeah, I really appreciate you making the time to talk to us. I learned so much and I'm sure our listeners will have as well. Sure. Uh, hopefully you can tag my socials as well. It's uh, uh, at 
Malakan the OG, so that's the name of my band. Um, uh, that's for Instagram and, and Twitter. Um, forward slash Malakan the OGs uh, TV for YouTube. Um, forward slash Malakan the OGs for Facebook. Um, and you know my work is is out there. Google me and uh, reach out if um, if you're interested in in knowing more. Awesome, thank you. I'll definitely put um, your social media handles in, in the show notes for this episode. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Scottish Centre for Global History podcast. We hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we enjoyed producing it. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can visit our website, globalhistory.org.uk, email us on scgh at dundee.ac.uk, or follow us on Twitter at uodscgh. Thank you.